good morning, uh, and thank you so much for joining us this morning at Lighthouse Community Church. And I have to admit that uh, this has been a really difficult week. It's been a pretty painful week for a lot of us, but I am feeling tremendously under attack by the enemy. And what I've learned is that when those kind of attacks come, when it begins to feel like things are going crazy, that's often not when we are at our most weak. It's often when God has plans for us and, he, and the enemy doesn't want that to happen. And so I am absolutely convinced that God wants to use today. We're going to be talking about the gospel today. I have absolutely no doubt that the enemy would love to thwart that. And so I need to begin inviting God to help himself to this time and to protect us. And I invite you to bow your heads with me and let's pray one more time. Father God, we have an enemy that is looking to steal our hope, kill our joy, and destroy our faith. He's working really hard right now. He's stirring up dissension in our neighborhoods, in our nation. There are people who are hurting deeply, Father, And there are others that are so blinded to the areas where they themselves, I, I, I just, I just am carrying so much sadness for our country, but I'm also carrying sadness, Father, um, for the ways that we have allowed the enemy to be working in our midst. And he would love to mess today up. And so I invite you, Holy Spirit, to go to war against the enemy. We stand against his attacks. I pray, Father, that you would guide this time. Holy Spirit, help yourself to the things I've prepared. I pray more than anything that you would plant some sparks of hope in the hearts of my brothers and my sisters who are listening and in my own heart as well. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. So last week was Pentecost Sunday, and we began a conversation in Acts looking at how God began to use his people to do what he'd called them to do. Because even though Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't just leave the world on its own. He said, listen, those of you who have been following me are going to continue the work that I have begun. And so wait for the Holy Spirit to come, because without the Holy Spirit, you can't do anything of any lasting value. But once the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses, beginning here in Judea, but then radiating out into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so last week, we looked at the beginnings of that when the Holy Spirit fell and filled their hearts with a flame of hope. And it transformed the disciples. It pushed them out into the streets of Jerusalem. They began to share the good news with others. And many people had fires of hope kindled in their own hearts. But as human nature has it, even the disciples had a hard time moving beyond Jerusalem, moving beyond the, the, the comfort of their own little cocoon of people that thought like them and acted like them and lived like them. And so it took persecution. God allowed persecution to impact the community of Christ followers and basically blew the embers. It took, it took the death of the first Christian martyr to really break the back of their resolve to stay together and push them out into Judea, out into Samaria, 
And those embers of hope began to implant themselves into other cities. And more people learned the good news. But it wasn't finished. And today we're going to pick up the story where we left off before Easter. This message that I'm going to be sharing today was one I've actually been, I anticipated sharing right after Easter. But you all know how that goes, right? In his heart, a man plans his path and the Lord directs his steps or how some of us have used it. Man plans and God laughs. It's kind of been how this has all played out. And none of us could have seen what the last two and a half months have held. None of us could have anticipated the fact that I would be speaking to an empty church today, but that you would be in your homes or you would be gathering with life groups or you would be, I, I couldn't have anticipated that we would be able to do this via live stream nine weeks ago. I'm so grateful that we are because there's so many more of you who can join us. We didn't anticipate what would happen with the, the riots and the, 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 the peaceful protests and the things that have been stirred up and the, the strongholds that have been exposed in our nation and the pain that we are working through, the, the communal grief. And so we've spent six weeks or so kind of grappling with our grief. But today, we're finally getting back to Acts, and we're going to be looking at the second act of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. So if you're turning there, if you hit Romans or 1 Corinthians, go left. You've gone a little too far. And if you're in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you've got to go right. The book of Acts documents the rise of the early church and the growth of the churches, they began to take the good news beyond Jerusalem into those places where people did not yet know the good news. And the second act of Acts is going to zero in on one person in particular, a guy named Paul. And you might have known Paul for previously. His name was known as Saul. His Romanized name was Paul. Same person. Saul had persecuted the church. He had sought to stamp out the gospel message before it could ever really take off. He'd presided over the death of the first Christian martyr. And yet God got a hold of his heart and said, I'm going to use you. I'm going to send you to the untouchables, to the, the Samaritans, to the, to the Gentiles, people who aren't of Jewish blood. I'm going to send you to them because this good news is of great joy for them as well. And the second act of Acts is going to follow him as he begins to leave the church that he's a part of. The church he was in is in Antioch. It was up kind of, if I had a map, I would show you that we had a, do we have a map? Throw it up there. This is great news if we have it. Is it there? I'm not sure. I'm just going to keep talking. Is it up there? <laughs> hey, all right. Thank you so much. All right, so. On this map, you see the gold pin on the map on the right side. That is Antioch. That's the starting point of where Paul is going to go on his first missionary journey. That's where his home church is. From there, he sails with his friend Barnabas and a guy named John Mark to the, the island of Cyprus. And there, there's a couple of interactions he has. And then from there, he continues up into the, the region of Asia. And up at the top... On the left, up in the region, in the hill country of Asia, he comes to a city that's also, ironically, called Antioch. But we know this one as Pisidian Antioch. So this is where the story that we're going to pick up today takes place. Because once he gets to Pisidian Antioch, 
he and Barnabas enter into the synagogue. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Why does he go to the synagogue? I thought he was called to the Gentiles. But you see that Paul was all about sharing the good news with anybody who hadn't heard, both Jew and Gentile. He didn't see a difference in being able to share to both of them. There, he, he saw no conflict in that whatsoever. But, and this became kind of his, his way of approaching missions in new cities, is he would go first and foremost to those who spoke the same language, those who were anticipating the same things. Because remember, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and the Jews were the ones who were waiting for the Messiah. So the lowest hanging fruit would be to speak to those who were desperately waiting and praying for the Messiah to show up, and that would be the Jews. So although he was also going to share with the Gentiles, he began by going into the synagogue. And we're going to go ahead and begin reading in Acts chapter 13, verse 14. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday morning, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, which is what we know as the Old Testament, for the, but for the Jews, that was their holy scriptures. After they spent some time reading out of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, hey, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak up. You, you, you've traveled here. You've come sharing good news. We want to hear it. So if you have a word of exhortation, we'd love to hear it. So standing up, Paul motioned with his hands and he said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. So he's speaking to a room full of Jews and Jewish converts. Listen to me. And this is verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. And with mighty power, he led them out of that country and out of slavery. For about 40 year, years, he endured their conduct, their really bad behavior, their, their forgetfulness as they wandered through the wilderness. Verse 19, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving them the land to his people as their inheritance. And all of this from choosing of the people and calling of Abraham to when he led them into the promised land took 450 years. After this, God gave them the judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. The judges were, were people who would help kind of step up and, and give some guidance to the people of Israel. Because once they got into the promised land, everybody did as they saw fit. And the judges were people who helped kind of bring some alignment from time to time. They were also imperfect people. But God used them until the time of Samuel, the prophet, who rose up to be God's intermediary because God was going to be the people's king. After this, God gave them, um, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21. Then, although he had given them Samuel the prophet to be the intermediary between them and God, verse 21, the people asked for a king. So he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, and he ruled them for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning David. He said, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John the Baptist preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. But as John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? 
I'm not the one you're looking for, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Remember, he's talking to people who knew of John the Baptist, had thought that John the Baptist might have been somebody of great importance, and he's saying it wasn't John the Baptist. And then, verse 26, he really gets down to the point of what he's trying to share. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers didn't recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the very words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. They brought scripture to fulfillment. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, when, Pi- when they asked Pilate to have him executed, or they still asked Pilate to have him executed, and when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now the witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Now let's pause there for a moment. Because I understand that if you're anticipating Paul to get up and share the gospel, that's probably not what you would have expected him to say. You're probably wondering, where's the gospel in all of this? Where are you going with this, Paul? But let me remind you, he is speaking to a Jewish audience and he's speaking their language. They are well acquainted with the history of the Jewish people. And what Paul does is he begins to point to high points in their history, things that they were intimately familiar with. But they weren't just high points. There were also periods of great pain. He points to the 400 years that they spent enslaved in Egypt. He points to the 40 years they spent wandering the wilderness before they could go into the promised land because the people doubted God. And even when he said, go in and take the land, they said, no, there's giants there. And so they spent 40 years wandering the wilderness. He points to them entering into the promised land with fear and trepidation, but also just saying, God, if you're with us, we'll go. And and watching as God began to knock down strongholds, tearing down walls that had divided them and giving them the land that he had promised. It didn't go quickly, certainly not as quickly as they would have liked. It took 450 years just from the calling of his people to them entering into the promised land and taking possession of it. And it didn't stop there. He points then to once they got in and how everybody just kind of began to get comfortable and forgot about God and living however they wanted. They did what they saw fit, even though God was saying, hey, I brought you here so that you would be my treasured possession and that you would be my ambassadors of hope to the rest of the world. Had you forgotten? So he points to the period of the Jews. I'm sorry, not the Jews. He points to the period of the judges. These men and women who had to step up and kind of wake up God's people. And finally, he points to the fact that even when God said, I will be your king, I will lead you through my prophet Samuel, that wasn't good enough for the Jews. They wanted to be just like the other nations around them. They wanted a king just like the other nations did. And so God gave in to their demands and he gave them a king just like all the other nations had, one that was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. But he was also really insecure. And he used his position of authority for his own well-being. And the people suffered. And then finally, after he removed Saul, 
from his position of authority. He placed David on the throne. And he points to all of these moments, these high points that were in a lot of ways low points, painful points. And Paul says, hey, listen, even though those were painful, God was using every single one of them. Because all of them form a link in the chain that ultimately led to Jesus Christ coming onto this earth, being born onto this planet. Jesus came from the line of David. He came to fulfill all of the things that God had promised. Because remember, God had said to the people of Israel right at the beginning, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And through you, I will bless everybody. Well, they'd forgotten that. They thought their blessing was for themselves. But God had sent them to be a blessing to all of mankind. And that blessing came in the form of Jesus Christ. And so that is what Paul zeroes in on. And he says, all of this has culminated in Jesus coming. In Jesus walking amongst us. In Jesus going to the cross and taking upon himself the punishment that all of us have earned. And then God raising Jesus from the dead because even the grave couldn't get the last word with him. And Paul really points out that Jesus' coming is the epicenter of everything they've been waiting for. It is the fulfillment of all they've been longing for and praying for and gathering in the hopes of experiencing. Everything that's come before was leading up to Jesus coming. And everything that will transpire afterwards from the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit to the growth of the church to today, everything points back to and finds its meaning in Jesus giving his life for us. And Paul wraps up this gospel declaration in this way in verse 38. He says, Therefore, my friends, my fellow Jews and believers... I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And that's a justification we were never able to obtain under the law of Moses. So what's proclaimed to them? Forgiveness of sins. Which ones? Every single one. And who's it for? Everybody who believes. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Eric. (laughs) You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. And you're right. I don't know what you've done. But God does. And he sent Jesus anyway for you and for me. Because you don't know what I've done. And I'm not standing up here because I've got it all together. I'm not standing up here because I am some paragon of virtue and I'm perfect. Every single one of us who calls Jesus Lord and Savior does not do so because we have it all together. We do so because we're the first to say, I am a sinner and I'm desperately in need of grace. That is the only foundation I stand on is that God loves us anyway. So everybody, that's who we came to die for. Every single one of us. That's who it's good news for. Every single one of us who's drowning in our sin. And in case you you don't have to take my word for it, just consider the source of who's saying this. Remember who Paul is. Before Paul began his public ministry trying to build the church up, he sought to destroy the church. He celebrated, affirmed the, the stoning to death of the first Christian martyr. He tried to stamp out 
the sparks of hope that were beginning to catch fire in Jerusalem because he was afraid it would spread. But when God got a hold of his heart, when Jesus met him and showed him how he had been kicking against the very God he was trying to serve, everything changed for Paul. And God used him to powerfully begin to advance the good news. And he is still using his words to this day to advance them into our own hearts. Now you might say, well, what does, it, what does it take? What do I have to do? How do I take hold of the forgiveness? Well, you can't, can't do something to earn it, right? If we earned it, that wouldn't be a gift. That wouldn't be grace. That would be wages of, of effort, right? And the very thing that Paul says here is that you cannot earn it. No amount of rule keeping, no amount of observing the law can possibly save you, can possibly justify the sins that you've done. But that's what makes this such good news is that you don't have to make up for it. You don't have to do good things to kind of try to counteract the bad things you've done in your life. All you need to do is believe. And this is where we need to really define our term. Because when we talk about believing, a lot of us tend to think intellectually. I just need to think, oh, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is Lord, Amen. And that's it. But that's not belief. There are so many things that we say that we often don't mean in our hearts. And genuine, authentic belief is more than just paying lip service. This world is full of people who pay lip service to something, but don't actually back it up with their actions. And so I've used this analogy before, but I'm going to use it again because it's the best one I've got. This is a brand new chair. We just got them so that we could have, we needed a few extra. It's not nearly as sturdy as the chairs I've been using over the last couple of weeks to sit on. It looks a little bit more dinky. It's got a little bit less of a back on it. But I believe that this chair can hold me up. You might say, well, prove it. I don't have to prove it. I believe it. All right. But go ahead and sit down, Eric. No, I'm good. If I refuse to sit down in the chair, regardless of what I say, would you begin to question whether I really believe that this chair could hold me up? Probably. So how do you know if I genuinely believe that the chair can hold me up? You know it when I sit down in it. And I know it when I sit down in it because I suddenly begin to realize, oh, this is a lot more sturdy than I thought. And you know what? You might have a low back, but it's pretty comfortable. Right? All of those kind of things. Belief leads to action. It is a natural response of authentic belief. Now, I need to be real careful here because it might start sounding like I'm saying that belief is the action. That we are, now you're saying, Eric, I have to do something. No, and I'm simply saying if you genuinely believe in your heart, then it will lead to action. And that action will lead to a deeper sense of belief. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 8. He says, if you are my disciple, then you'll do what I say. And when you do what I say, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus who was the Christ, God's anointed redeemer, gave his life for me 2,000 years ago. I also believe that he rose from the dead. I know there is a tremendous amount of evidence for the fact that he rose from the dead. 
We've talked about it a number of times, and if you're interested, just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com, and I'll send you the links to those particular conversations because they're important. But I believe that. And I believe that he came and he said, follow me. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus began to go out and invite people to be his followers, to be his disciples, he never said, hey, pray this prayer, as if that was the end point. His invitation was always, follow me, walk with me, learn from me. Because as we walk together, as you watch how I live and you begin to emulate it, you will be changed. You will become a reflection of me in this world. You know, we use the term Christian to refer to ourselves as those who follow Christ. A Christian just means a little Christ. That's what we long to be, is a small reflection of Jesus in our particular sphere of influence. Those of us who believe that Jesus is Lord or Savior choose to obey him. And as we choose to obey him, as we choose to, to follow the things that he's laid out for us in the Gospels, as we choose to, rather than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and if somebody puts us down on social media, we get to slap them back. We turn the other cheek. Rather than returning persecution for persecution, we pray for those who persecute us. Rather than saying, hey, so long as I don't get caught, I'm good. We say, you know what? I've already got a father God that I'm, I'm following. Audience of one. And he sees it all. Rather than living for ourselves and seeking to be served and trying to climb some ladder of influence and power so that other people will have to serve us. If we begin to look at the ways that we have privilege and position and power and say, how do I use this God to help others who don't? As we begin to live out the values of the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdoms of this world, we will begin to taste and see that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. And our faith will deepen. But we're saved not by our actions, not even by our sitting down. We are saved simply by our acceptance of the gift of grace that he purchased for us on the cross. Now, Paul recognizes, and I recognize, that there are some of you who are listening who are probably a little skeptical about this. It seems too good to be true. You don't realize the depths of what I've done. It seems a little bit pastoral hokey, if you will. And I get that. But it doesn't make it untrue. And Paul recognized that there would be some who would push back, who would be skeptical of this good news. And so he says to those who are listening in verse 40, Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. And then he quotes from Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. He says, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Paul is well aware of the fact that although there are some who are hearing his message and those sparks of hope are beginning to find purchase in their heart and they're beginning to burn into a small flame of hope that are going to transform how they live, he well recognizes that there are some in that crowd 
who are standing there with their arms crossed, radically skeptical of the words that are coming out of his mouth. Because they know what they know. They know what they expect the Messiah to look like. And a crucified carpenter is not it. And they know that God only saves those who save themselves. That God only helps those who can climb the ladder of good works and of, of following the Mosaic law. And Paul is now suggesting that that ladder has been leaning against the wrong wall the whole time. And that nobody can be saved that way. And he knows that there are some that are hardening their heart. And he says to them, listen, if you harden your heart, if you take a skeptical posture towards this and everything else, then no amount of truth will ever penetrate I can sow seeds of hope all day long and it's just going to fall on hardened soil. And the worries of this world are going to come like birds and snatch it away before it can ever take root. Don't let that happen to you because you're hearing the good news and it's good for you. But if you refuse it, then what good will it do for you? Jesus could walk in and he could show you the nail holes. And it wouldn't make one bit of difference. And so I want to simply extend to those of you who are listening. I know that there are some of us who have been following Jesus for a long time. And we have tasted and seen and we know. Now our faith has grown deeply because of the roots of hope. As we've leaned into it, as we've obeyed. And we haven't done it perfectly. Not a single one of us have. Don't hear me saying that in any way. But many of us have tasted and seen. Others perhaps have, have kind of taken that first step of saying, I believe, Jesus, I want you to come in. But you've never really taken the step of following him. For you, a prayer was about the extent of it. Maybe sometimes you watch a video, uh, one of the live streams. Maybe sometimes you come to church. But for the most part, you've been paying lip service to Jesus. But you haven't really been following him. And then there are maybe some of you who are listening right now who maybe this is the first time you're hearing this, or maybe this is the hundredth time you're hearing this, but you've never been in a place where you were willing to kind of bend the knee and say, Jesus, I need you. I need to rest in you. Jesus, I need you to come into my life because I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I've been trying so hard and I'm so, I feel so guilty. And to all of us, whether we've been walking for a really long time and following for a really long time, or we've never taken a step in the direction of Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus came and he gave his life for you. That's how deeply he loves you. And God raised him from the dead. The grave couldn't hold him in. And he proved once and for all that he was who he said he was and he could do what he said he could do, namely to save us and forgive our sins so that we can be restored back into relationship with our Father. Back into the purpose for which we were called, namely to be reflections of his heart into this world that so desperately needs hope. Our world is hurting. And he needs people who are willing to say, not only Jesus, I trust you and you, I want you to be my savior, but people who say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want, to, I want to rest in you and I want to follow you and I want to be used by you. Shape me in your image so that I can help others. And if that's you this morning, 
If you genuinely feel, God, I want you to help because I've reached my end. I've tried it all my own. Then I'm just going to, and this is going to sound ironic, but I am going to pray a prayer. It is not how you are saved, but it is an acknowledgement of your willingness and your intent to follow. And so, Father, and if, if what I'm about to pray is a reflection or resonates with your heart, then I invite you to pray it along with me. Father God, I need you. And Jesus, I believe that you came to save me. Jesus, I believe that you died for me and for others like me. Jesus, I believe that the grave couldn't hold you in and that you raised from the dead. And Jesus, I believe that you are inviting me to come home, to stop running, to stop trying to do it on my own. And Jesus, I have a whole lot of questions. Because I know that I don't know everything. But I know that I want to know you. So Jesus, I invite you to help yourself to my life. I choose this moment to follow you. I know I won't do it perfectly. Holy Spirit, I need you to help me. Would you come into my heart? Would you begin to clear house? Would you begin to expose the things in me? that are contrary to the things in you. God, would you peel the scales away from my eyes so that I can see this world and my neighbors and my family and my world through your eyes. Jesus, I choose to follow you. I choose to rest in you. I choose to allow you to use me to bring about your purpose and your plans in this world. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. That's not the, that's not the finish line. Even if that's the first time you prayed it, I celebrate that and I want to know it, but that is not the finish line. That's the starting line of a lifetime that will extend beyond the grave and into eternity of getting to walk with God and be used by God and to worship God through our actions as well as our words. Now, if you chose to pray that prayer, whether it was for the 10th time, like a re-dedication of your heart, or it was the first time, we want to know about it. And I, don't, I want you to share it with somebody else. Please don't keep it to yourself, but also share it with us. We want to know because here's what I know. The enemy's going to come hard. He's going to attack like he's been attacking me and my family and our nation. He is going to be attacking at you because he doesn't like to give up what he considers to be his rightful territory. Please let us know because we want to pray for you. We want to walk with you. And we want to be able to grapple with the questions that are naturally going to arise because we all have them. I still have them. And that's okay. So would you please let us know so that we can walk with you. 
as we all follow Jesus together. And now I just want to celebrate with you, my family. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And we're going to spend a little bit of time just celebrating. Maybe that looks like you just praying and continuing a conversation on your own with Jesus. Maybe it looks like singing these words because they resonate your, with your heart. Maybe it looks like getting down on your knees. Sometimes the posture of our body leads the posture of our heart. So sometimes just getting down on your knees or, or standing up and raising your hands up, that will help your heart to begin to follow suit. But whatever you do, let's, let's praise our God because he is worthy of our praise. Let's worship together. I see the Lord seated on the throne, exalted, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory, and the whole earth is filled, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory and the whole earth is filled and the whole earth is filled and the whole earth is filled with his glory
that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah. You know, I was thinking as we were worshiping about the heart of what Paul was saying to the people listening. He was saying, think back to how you've seen God work. 
even when it seemed like he was absent, even during those 400 years of slavery, even as you wandered through the wilderness, even as you sat under the the leadership of Saul, even as you waited hundreds of years for Jesus or the Messiah to come, God was using even that to bring about his purpose and his plans. No, it didn't go at the speed you would have liked. Certainly this whole coronavirus shutdown and the, the, the healing of our country because of racial injustice is not going nearly as fast as all of us would like. But do not forget that God is still working. He's still moving. Because Jesus has already overcome our greatest enemy. And so may we now As men and women who have said yes to him, may we now as men and women who have had the Holy Spirit given to us to help us to be a reflection of his heart, may we be sowers of seeds of hope. May we take the hope that is kindled in our hearts and begin to allow embers to rub off onto others as we share the hope that we have in us with gentleness, humility, and respect. We don't get to be jerks in it. One last thing. A couple of months after Paul was visiting this region, he ended up writing a letter to them to encourage them and to continue the work that had begun in this fledgling church that he had planted there and in other cities of that region. We know that letter is the book of Galatians. And perhaps as a way of responding this week, you could begin to read through the letter to the Galatian churches Because a lot of what we've been dialoguing about today flows through that as well. So maybe that's just a place for you to spend some time devotionally this week. But more than everything else, if you have Christ in your heart, you are his ambassador. And he's invited you to join him in what he's doing. And that is to share the hope that you have in you with others. They desperately need to hear it. Our world needs it now. So Father, help yourself to our lives. We pray that you would use even the messiness of this life, this quarantine, all of the unrest that's going on and all of the conversations it's stirring up. Would you use it to advance your kingdom purposes and would you show us our part to play in that? Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. I love you and I'll see you soon.